0: Welcome to The Right to Shower, critical conversations on homelessness and cleanliness. Hello, and welcome to The Right to Shower, a show with the purpose right there in the title. Each episode, we're joined by leaders from NGOs, politicians and other experts in social fields to explore why access to cleanliness is a fundamental human right. We're breaking down biases, sharing intimate stories, coming to new understandings, and discussing how providing access to cleanliness is helping those in the unhoused community. This podcast is brought to you by The Right to Shower. The Right to Shower helps build mobile showers for those experiencing homelessness. Stick around at the end of the podcast to learn how you can get involved. I'm your host, Darius Baxter, President and CEO of Good Projects. And this week, we've got two exciting guests. First, we've got medical director and founder of Pittsburgh Mercy's Operation Safety Net and founder of the Street Medicine Institute, Dr. Jim Withers. Plus, we've also got street psychiatrists for the Street Medicine Institute, the Center for Inclusion Health, and the Alaney Health Network, Dr. Liz Fry. Today, we're going to discuss what makes hygiene so important for those living on the streets and how showers directly help both physical and mental well-being. Welcome to the show, Dr. Withers and Dr. Fry. Thank you. Thank you. Even as we, we've we started getting into this, I, I had the chance to talk to you guys a little bit behind the scenes. I'm seeing that there's a dynamic here. How did you all first meet for our, for our audience members? It doesn't seem like this is the first time you guys have been together here.
1: No, it is far from the first time that we have been together. So back in 2009, Jim was visiting Atlanta. I think in the context of something related to street medicine and was staying with a Physician who worked at Emory, which is where I was doing a fellowship in community psychiatry and public health at the time. And this friend of Jim's, I think, imagined himself as a bit of a patch Adams, but was a very interesting person. And at Nine o'clock one evening, I was in my condo and received a call from this man. I hardly knew him at all. And it was not long after I had started my fellowship. And for my fellowship, I was specifically working on helping people sleeping outside with mental health care. So, this person who I think I had met once. Called me at, at like nine, maybe even 10 p.m. one evening and said, hey, this great guy here who does street medicine in Pittsburgh and you have to come over and meet him. And so I took a deep breath and I looked at my husband. And I was like, I'm going over to some random man's house to meet another man who's apparently really important.
0: Perfect conversation to have with your husband. <laughs>
1: And I will text you if things don't go well. (laughs) And I got there. And I will not share with you my lasting impression of the man who invited me over. But let's just say it involved chips and salsa. But (laughs) meeting Jim for the first time, and I think... It was really exciting, partially because I had started doing work out on the streets in Atlanta, and here I had the opportunity to meet someone who was doing similar work and had been doing similar work in the physical health realm on the streets of Pittsburgh for a long time. I don't even know if Jim actually remembered meeting me at that time, but later that year in the fall, the Street Medicine Institute had a symposium in Atlanta, and that's where I really connected with with the Street Medicine Institute and a lot of the people attending the meeting and working within the context of street-based physical and mental health care. I don't know how I managed to... Insinuate myself as an essential part of the Street Medicine Institute, but I was able to do that and became part of the board in, I think, 2016. But yeah, ever since 2009, when I first met Jim and I first got connected with the Street Medicine Institute, I've been essentially hooked ever since.
0: Dr. Liz, I, from the short time that we've known each other, I can already tell that you don't lack confidence. So
1: <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> I have
0: no doubt how you ended up on the board of the Street Medicine Institute. Dr. Jim, this is something that this work that you started in the early 90s, right at the height of I know growing up here in Washington, D.C., crack was something that ravaged our cities. I can only imagine what the streets looked like back then. But here you are really pushing forward in something that has become this international model for our listeners that may not know about the Street Medicine Institute. Can you just tell us a little bit more about that?
2: So I I did get involved with going under bridges into abandoned buildings along the riverbanks here in Pittsburgh in 1992. So I'll be 30 years at it now. When I started, it was something that I felt really strongly about as a medical educator because I felt like we lived in our world and so many people were sort of other, if you will, and we didn't know how to connect or relate, humble ourselves to uh, meet people where they were. And so for me, it initially was just it was a classroom. It was a place where I could relearn how to be a human being with people. I got started, but I didn't know anyone else doing this work. I did meet a guy in Calcutta, Dr. Prager. He was the first person I ever met doing this work. And at that point in 93, December, I decided that I would go wherever I could, talk to whoever I could to try to promote this activity, this field of medicine, both as a social justice movement and uh, for people who deserved care but also to help us rediscover ourselves as healers, doctors, nurses, everyone in those fields. It snowballed and I began traveling all over the country and then all over the world. And so in 2005, I got an opportunity to, quote, replicate my model, but it was much more of a grassroots movement. And so I asked him if I could use the money to have a, a meeting, a symposium. So I had to give it a name, so I called it Street Medicine. And I invited you know a, a select group of people that I highly admired, Jim O'Connell in Boston, Jack Prager in Calcutta and some others. And we had our first meeting in Pittsburgh in 2005. That created a movement that grew and grew. And by 2009, 2008, I realized we needed a new organization, a nonprofit that would really be the home of this. And so uh, with others, we created the Street Medicine Institute.
0: And we're so glad that you did, Dr. Jim. We're so glad that you did help all of us understand it's easy to see the finished product and all the amazing work that the street medicine institute has done and continues to do around the world but what was that initial thing that inspired you to want to provide street medicine for those without shelter and help people living in the streets
2: as i said i i was keenly aware of how i don't know what language you like on this show but i concluded that we have great editors speak your mind okay good i basically realized that we were at in the health field. Say it again, Dr. Jim, repeat it for the people in the back. (laughs) It came to my attention that we were as doctors and and as a health system. We needed to unlearn that somehow. We needed a new classroom to help us see things from the outside, not just worry about the people in the waiting room, but the people who weren't in the waiting room. And that is the soul of what it means to be in healthcare. And we were uh, allowing ourselves to just become a A capitalistic enterprise that was dehumanizing the people we served and and dehumanizing us too. And I saw that slow death in the students that were coming along as they realized that probably much like police officers and first responders, that when you're in that uniform, you eventually can lose your humanity, whether you want to or not. It's very difficult. And so I wanted to do an end run, break free of those, of that lab coat and that structural violence and have a fresh start embedded in the reality of of people who were suffering, people who were excluded. And so I kind of went radical. I didn't tell the hospital anyone. I I found a guy who used to be homeless, and I said, would you take me out? And he said, well, just don't dress like a doctor and don't act like an ass. So I, I got a book, and it, it taught you how to dress kind of like you were on the street, and I did that. And then I started going out with Mike at night. It was a leap into the unknown for me. But to me, it was almost like soul saving, a liberation. Dr.
0: Jim, we thank you for your service. Thank you for your courage. Um, we thank Mike for taking you out on the street that day. You have just proved to us We over the course of the last several episodes, we realized there's a book out there for everything. In this case, there's even a book of how to fit in when you're going out to do your your mission in the streets. But Getting into the main conversation for today, topic this week is hygiene and homelessness. And we really want to explore why is cleanliness often overlooked as a core need of support in the unhoused community? Dr. Liz, I point this question to you. What makes hygiene so important?
1: So there's a functional component of it in which we are able to clean dirt off of our skin to make ourselves smell nice and look presentable to the people around us. But more than that, and I think why this is so important is the ability to have dignity and be able to feel respected by other people. That is the most important reason for why having accessibility of clean water and bathrooms and showers and soap is so vital to a person's psyche and vital for people around us to be able to treat us as people who should be respected and should be able to be seen with dignity. And I don't mean that to say that that people who are not clean should not be treated with respect or dignity. But I think so often people experiencing homelessness and the work that Jim and I do that's focused on people experiencing unsheltered homelessness do not have showers or adequate ability to clean their bodies or their hands. Often enough, That they get stigmatized further and discriminated against further because they do not have that capacity or that facility to in which to become clean. And so the idea of sort of quintessential picture that most Americans come up with in their heads of people experiencing homelessness is not the picture of somebody who has a right to dignity and respect, but they imagine the person as being lazy, dirty, and crazy. And those stigmatizing words are the cause, I think, of a lot of people not treating people experiencing homelessness as human beings and as human beings that deserve our love and our respect.
0: Certainly. And I appreciate you using that word dignity, Dr. Liz. Here at The Right to Shower, that's something that is one of our core principles and values. When you look at our products, we have Dignity as our both our body wash and our bar soaps, because it's very important, along with hope, joy and strength, like these terms that often aren't associated with those experiencing homelessness. But as you so eloquently stated, it's imperative. It has to be when you're engaging in this work in order to fully understand what we're getting into. Let's just continue to explore this, Dr. Liz. Are the benefits of a shower often taken for granted when we think about those that are experiencing homelessness?
1: I mean, yeah, absolutely. I think that when even those of us who have jobs to help people experiencing homelessness, showering and being clean is not at the top of our priorities. When we think about what we can offer people experiencing homelessness, a lot of it is focused around housing. And more and more with uh, the focus of street medicine in the international community and more people doing health care on the streets for people sleeping outside, we are focused on providing health care for people. But all too often, showers and the ability to be clean and feel clean, feel good, are are not ranking up there particularly highly. And I would say for the people sleeping outside, too, while showering I think it is important to all of them among the hierarchy of needs that people have, safety being the highest, food, being able to, you know, maintain and survive, getting into housing. Those are all priorities. And for all of us, showering oftentimes falls by the wayside, even though it could be the step that helps people get into housing or get that job that would pay for their housing showering in addition to being able to get people into housing or help get people into housing, help them get jobs. It it can be that needed kind of mental component of like, I feel good. I feel worth it. That is the difference between health and well-being. I think we talk a lot about the absence of disease in terms of mental well-being, but true well-being doesn't come from the absence of disease. It comes from feeling good about ourselves, being treated well by other people, and having things in our lives that matter, like the ability to to engage in something productive and to have people who love us and that we love in our lives.
0: Beautiful, Dr. Liz. That was Beautiful. It's interesting that you say that, Dr. Liz, and I'm coming out of an experience over the last several weeks that took me to Kenya and then to El Salvador. And being in those regions helped me recognize very quickly even on my worst days, the level of privilege that I have here, living in America, growing up in America, and something as what I would think of as primal as a shower. You go into these communities and you realize even at the nicest hotels, like having a warm shower is the luxury of all luxuries. You got to stay at the Four Seasons times 10 to get warm water. And they're looking at me crazy like, Warm water. Oh no, we don't do that here.
1: Or even to have water at all. I spent January and February in Nairobi in Kenya many moons ago when I was in medical school and I was not staying at the Four Seasons. I was staying in a hostel and it was during the end of the dry season. And just to have water at all for a shower on a regular basis, not even a daily basis, but to have water, I think it's a luxury, much less hot water.
0: Certainly. And when you talk about sort of this stigma that goes around with just the simple function of being able to take a shower. So I transitioned from El Salvador directly to the mountains of Minnesota. And for the first time, even then, I sort of had taken showers as a luxury, where they were still accessible. And now we're five hours away from outside of St. Paul, Minnesota, and there is no showers in the cabin. (laughs) We're talking to the guides and they're telling us, "Okay, you all be prepared. You may not shower for the next four days. If you want to take a shower, you have to jump into the cold lake. Between you and I, I, I didn't jump in the cold lake. So I'm on a flight back, and immediately I have to attend an event yesterday night. And I'm just thinking to myself the whole time as I'm on the plane, "Oh my gosh, I haven't showered in four days. <laughs> I got my little wet wipes. I'm trying, to, but I just started for the first time in my life. I had never been sort of forced into this experience where I was going to a place and I did not have access to a shower. And I could feel the mental toll. It wasn't until a friend of mine came up to me. And they were like, "Oh my God, you smell so nice!" They didn't realize it was the Minnesota Musk, but I was like, "Okay, I, I can, I'm good now. The ice is broken." Doctor Jim, how do showers impact the mental as well as the physical well-being of those unhoused individuals? Yeah, it's a, it's profound.
2: I think the the context which you begin to appreciate after a while, if you're sensitive and uh, have empathy, is the degree to which people have been. Um, otherized, excluded, and have often adopted a sense of lower self-esteem, lower potential for themselves, kind of a hopelessness. And that is a form of oppression that is very prevalent with many many groups, but probably none any more than those experiencing uh, homelessness on the street. They're literally viewed as uh, modern lepers. I remember early on, and I don't want to beat these folks up too much, but there was a fundraiser for my, uh, or a, a clothes raiser for my program back in the early nineties, which is nice. I went there. There was a musical event, but afterwards, when I went to see what they donated, they had literally donated dirty clothes and it shocked me. It shocked me. And then I realized it was almost like the Barbie and Ken as a kid. It was like good clothes go on good people and dirty clothes go on dirty people. It was shocking to me, but it's just a reminder of how otherized people can be. I began doing haircuts in the alleys back in those days, and I actually loved it. And one of the things I loved about it- Street doctor and barber. Yeah. Yeah. And and pedicurist. Okay. <laughs>
1: we have learned on street medicine that unless you have the ability to do almost everything, including things that you never thought you would do as part of your job, it is a benefit to the work that you do on the streets.
2: Liz is right because- you literally see folks for whom everything has failed. So they've fallen literally fallen through the cracks and every kind of misadventure and disaster that you can imagine, you will see eventually on the street. And so it's really important and I think central to our work to say that's important. If it's important to you, it's important to me too. So yeah, I got good at doing haircuts. My kids would disagree, but, and clipping nails. And then I remember a guy that came up He'd been really in a low place and one day we saw him and he, he walked up to us and he had a new suit on and uh he'd gone to the Goodwill or Salvation Army and gotten a new suit and he said, I'm gonna go apply for a job and sure enough he got it and he was off the street. It was one of those things where I, I realized that there's a leap people have to make to reenter the rat race, if you will, <laughs> to escape, escape from that vicious cycle of stigma, self doubt. And I feel like hygiene, showers, and the things that make you feel like a human being can be that point that really, really makes that leap possible.
0: It helps you move forward to the next step. No, I I understand completely. And I know this is something that's near and dear to our listeners as well. But when you talk about showers, it just immediately gets me thinking about a story of a gentleman, actually, uh, Reverend Andy Bells at Union Rescue Mission. I'm sure he's somebody that's come across you at Zesco over the years. And one of the things about Andy Bell's is the work that he's doing in Union Rescue Mission, very similar to your story, Dr. Jim. He was out doing his outreach work on Skid Row and was cut while sleeping out on Skid Row, caring to those experiencing homelessness. And the cut turned into an infection and he ended up having to have his leg amputated. And he has several accounts of this, actually, over the course of his heralded career of supporting those experiencing homelessness. I really want to understand from both of you all, how have you all managed to, because there are risks, you know, you can win all of these prizes, you can be on podcasts like this, but how have you all managed to overcome some of the very real threats that exist as you're going out doing this street medicine in places all across the world? You know, it goes back to don't be. And I think
2: that's, that's a simplistic way of saying it. But the most valuable things to bring on the street are things like respect, humility, curiosity, compassion, and respect. I want to say that several times. These things will create relationships that are some of the best that you'll ever have in your life. You'll have to co-suffer a little bit with people who've been through more than you could imagine. And it takes time to go there, but you know, knock on wood, nobody that we know has ever been hurt by anybody experiencing homelessness in the six continents that I've traveled on to uh, help start street medicine programs. I don't know of anyone who's ever been harmed doing this work. I think in the beginning, you have, especially, you have to be very careful. You have to go out with people who know the folks on the street who are trusted. If you're going to get involved in this work, you should contact the Street Medicine Institute at streetmedicine.org. But You're in a strange land and you you have to realize that it has its own rules and its own danger. Learn from those who've been there and uh, don't make assumptions and don't come out with your own agenda because that'll get you down some path that will lead to trouble.
1: You know, I think for me, the threats that I experience in doing street medicine has nothing to do with the people sleeping outside or very little to do with the people sleeping out.
0: And I want to make sure I pref- I prefaced before you continue, Dr. Liz, Anyways, he he cut himself on an object. It wasn't an individual that cut him. I want to make sure that we make that point.
1: Sure. Yeah. And that's what it, that's what it sounded like. Certainly. The threat of things that can happen when you're sleeping outside among the people who you love and are caring for, not related to the people out there. But I I think for me, even the threat of like cutting myself on the street or, you know, if I'm giving somebody an injection, accidentally like sticking myself with a needle or anything like that. I think the threats really have to do with both the systems in which we work and function and the mental component for ourselves of loving and caring for people that other people don't. When you love someone on the street and they die, it hurts in a way that it doesn't hurt for some of my other patients. And I think that's because of the kind of relationship that we have with the people out on the street it's beyond a doctor patient relationship it's it's beyond the the hairdresser and person with hair relationship
0: add hairdresser to the list
1: <laughs> it's about being a real human sitting with another real human who you have grown to care about and love and be friends with and sit with them in their struggle that is deeply personal and powerful.
0: Do you have any stories you can share with us, Dr. Liz? I can I can tell this is I can tell this is coming from a, a deeper place.
1: Yeah, you're just trying to make me cry in the ugly way. It's nothing wrong uh, with crying.
0: It's nothing <laughs> wrong with crying. Tears water the earth, beautiful things grow. You
1: know, I think Jim and I can both recount A lot of stories of people who we have been with in this way and have died on the streets, and even people who we have worked with on the street and have died in the hospital and in the housing that we were able to help them with that are all heart wrenching, and that there are far too many people who fall into that category of people who have died that we've been working with. I think for one person in particular, a man who died when I was working on the street medicine team in Atlanta. He had, whoa, a laundry list of physical health issues. I mean, you name it. He had had it. He had had DVTs, which is deep vein thrombosis. He had had pulmonary emboli, which is a clot that goes to the heart. He had had heart attacks, he had had strokes, he had schizophrenia and constantly heard voices. We always saw him in this one area of Atlanta, and it was he slept up against the wall of an old restaurant, we called it JJ's Fish, because JJ's Fish was across the street. But he slept essentially at JJ's Fish. And he was always in this one spot, at times could not navigate there was like so there were it was like this little space where there was a bit of a curb almost but there wasn't like sidewalk next to the building so there was just like a raised part and then there was space on the ground between that little kind of piece of concrete and the building and he was oftentimes sort of wedged in that space between um the the little concrete piece and the and the side of the building and i think it was a little warmer there because he was up against the side of the building but oftentimes he was sort of physically stuck there because he had lost the ability to use some of his limbs and people would help him out and nearly every time we went there He smelled of urine because he wasn't physically strong enough to get out of that little space to go somewhere else to use the restroom. We had been working with him for several months, and I, in particular, had started some medication to help him not hear voices. We had seen him, and then maybe two weeks later, we were back at the same spot, and he wasn't there And we went across the street and we're talking to some other people that were sleeping outside who we were working with. And they told us that he had died in that same spot of a massive stroke. He was one of those people that it just, it hurt my heart when he died because he died by himself and he died in a place where he could not move and could not get clean. And there was some solace to me. I think that he knew we loved him. He had also had about six weeks or so of not hearing voices for the last six weeks of his life. And then I had the joy of knowing that he had not been tormented by those voices when he died. You know, it just hurt. And I think it's the risk of loving someone that much that you can't not hurt when they're gone.
0: and his tears come to both your eyes, Dr. Liz and Dr. Jim as well, to have a moment of silence for James and understanding that at the end of the day, to your point, I'm sure those last few weeks that he had the opportunity to spend with you and the care that you provided to him were some of the greatest times in his life. And we can rest easy knowing that and take a lot of joy in knowing that we are still here. We understand our purpose. And through platforms like this, we have the opportunity to continue to impact the lives of hopefully millions of people experiencing homelessness just making their life uh, just that much better but when you tell James story one of the things that you really stressed was him laying there by himself in his own filth for our listeners that may not be aware help us to understand how hard can it be for someone like James transitioning through homelessness to be able to find a reliable place to shower
1: so even someone without The physical challenges that he had. It's very challenging to find a place to shower. And find a place to use a restroom. I would say I have far more experience in kind of learning about what it takes to find a restroom than learning what it takes to find a shower. But rest assured that toilets are much easier to find for people experiencing homelessness than showers. For the most part, the places that people have available to shower are in homeless shelters. This is not a shower, but to have a a bath in a sink in like a, a restaurant or a store is probably kind of the closest a lot of people get. And as an aside, like our outreach team had a donation of these enormous size, like wet wipes that you could use on your body. And they were maybe by far the most popular item that our street team got donations up from our folks on the street because like, literally, like you could cover like a big swath of your arm with just one wet wipe. And it was pretty effective. But like to find an actual shower, you're looking at going into a homeless shelter. So people who are not living at that shelter, oftentimes, like they may not even be allowed in just for a shower. Even if they are, they're competing with the people who are staying there for that shower there was a and i i can't bring up the the exact information from the the study or the that i referenced in a paper that i wrote about open defecation but Essentially, when we talk about rights and human rights, the United Nations is an organization that is committed to the rights, all kinds of rights, including the right to clean water and sanitation. And when they looked at the toilet availability in most homeless shelters the ideal in like, for example, a refugee situation is to have one toilet for every 15 to 20 people. And even the availability of toilets in most shelters exceeds that one toilet to 20 people. Essentially, there are more people per toilet than there should be. And that's the standard for refugees. So people who have left their country because of war or whatever, for example, not just homeless shelters, but that's kind of the minimum. And then within that, the number of showers available for people is even lower. We have a symposium every year, an international symposium for the Street Medicine Institute, which we are having in Toronto this year in the fall, in September. But we had a a student who was presenting a poster a couple of years ago, looking at the availability of like hygiene supplies, but also showers and things like that for people sleeping in a shelter. And I was very interested in what was going on because he described one situation in which the one of the two showers in the shelter was completely unusable or that people were avoiding because someone had defecated in the shower. And I asked him, I said, don't the bathrooms have toilets and showers in them? And he said, yes, but the rules of the shelter are that you can either wait in line for the toilet or you can wait in line for the shower. And the line for the shower is two to three hours long. And if you need to go to the bathroom and you want to shower, you don't have time to stand in both lines. So you end up using the shower as your bathroom. So those are the kinds of things that people experiencing homelessness are Running into when trying to shower. And that's just for the shelter users, the people who can't go into those shelters, either because they're not welcome at the shelter or they've had bad experiences there or they can't physically get there or they don't have transportation to get there. That's not even an option for them. But when they do get there, the showers have poop in them.
0: Wow. And these are interesting experiences that we're all learning as we continue to push forward on the Right to Shower podcast. But, in closing, for this week's episode, um, and we'll start with you, Dr. Jim. what are things that we or anyone listening to the podcast today can do in our everyday lives to make a difference in positively impacting people experiencing homelessness? Well,
2: I'll go back to the notion of of stigma slowly, I hope as a society, we are learning about the damages that stigma and racism and otherism inflict, but those who are sleeping on the streets, are still by and large fair game for being despised, being blamed for their own circumstances with no, no knowledge of who that individual really is. And I think it's one of the most insidious and cruel things to perpetuate that. I would say that educate yourself. And then when you hear comments that lead to that kind of stigmatization and hate which ultimately results into much death. Much death is attributable to that sense that those lives are different than ours and they don't matter. Stand up against
0: it. Certainly. Dr. Liz, do you have any uh, closing thoughts on what things our listeners might do to be able to impact those experiencing homelessness?
1: Absolutely. I think in addition to to what Jim said, there are small things and large things. <laughs> You know, when you're driving in your car and you see someone panhandling on the side of the road, even if you don't have money to give, well, first of all, one of the things that I really love that Jim does is he keeps bottles of water and granola bars in his car and hands that out to people who are panhandling. But even if you don't have anything to give, you always have eye contact and a smile. So many people I've worked with out on the street say that they feel invisible To everybody else in the world, eye contact and a smile matters. And even a roll your window down and say, hey, my name is Liz. How are you today? It matters. I think there are bigger things too. There are all kinds of, I mean, in almost every city in the United States, there's a healthcare for the homeless organization that is always happy to take donations. Can't tell you how many hotels we have gone to and taken the the little bottles of shampoo or saved our little bottles of shampoo and conditioner and soap so that hygiene kits could be made. And it's also things like donating to organizations that are doing good important work to help improve the lives of people experiencing homelessness. I think all of those things can be part of it. And I think also if if people have the availability to to volunteer and serve food or, you know, work overnight in a shelter and to work towards befriending and being a companion to somebody who is sleeping outside or sleeping in a shelter and just to learn about who they are as a person, I think is maybe one of the most important things we can do.
2: I would include it or not, but I, I would say that what I love about the right to shower is that it addresses immediate dignity and needs that people have. That's important. But what happens then is you can look for those ways to reduce the indignity people have through donations and, and just serving food and doing something humble and, and learning. And after you're involved for a while, you and others can begin to say, Hey, there's an unmet need that would give some more dignity back to people. What that does, then it creates kind of a snowball effect where uh, a group of people begin to say, These are our sisters and brothers. One thing can lead to another, and you can actually tip the attitudes of society if you begin and persist on the, on the simple things
0: that have to do with daily, daily life and dignity. Watch out uh, four seasons around the world. Dr. Liz is coming for your sample bottles in the shower. We have a world that needs soap. And that's why we're so grateful for brands like the right to shower and organizations like the street medicine Institute who are doing the work on the grounds special sending a lot of love to our partners at live and May today as well. After this amazing conversation, just as we close final words from Dr. Liz and Dr. Jim, we try to send our audience off with an affirmation of some kind. Um, do you all have a word for our listeners as we close this week's episode?
2: You're not crazy for caring. There are a lot of challenges, but we're all in it together. I think if we just embrace the notion that we are sisters and brothers, that will lead us to the place that we need to
0: go. Don't be an a- Couldn't have said it better myself. Thank you so much for joining us and listening to The Right to Shower. I want to say thank you as well to Dr. Withers and Dr. Fry for coming on the show and telling us about the importance of showers and how they can directly impact both physical and mental well-being. If you'd like to get involved, there's a few ways you can. You can visit the RightToShower.com/slash/get-involved to learn more about opportunities to volunteer or donate. You can also buy our shower products on the RightToShower.com or through Amazon. For every soap you buy and shower you take, you help us bring showers to the streets. Another free and simple way you can help us to rate this podcast. Leave a review or share it with friends so that we can spread the power of the shower to even more people. I'm Darius Baxter, and this has been The Right to Shower. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next week.